Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a series about how space technology, colonization, and exploration are transforming our solar system. Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, Aaron. Happy to be here. So Arcs of Chaos, uh, I'm very interested in this topic and, and, and would love to hear more. Yeah, I think... Uh, Certainly, at least the as far as the title goes, it probably wins the the best title award <laughs> um, for for physics uh, science papers of, of twenty twenty. So we're gonna plan to have um, uh, around a five to fifteen minute presentation from from Aaron, followed by uh, uh, a and A and and open conversation. Yeah, sounds good. All right, so um, yeah, so what I want to do is just kind of introduce a bit about the uh, significance of space manifolds and, and what has been termed the gravity superhighway. Now, of course, that that term, the the interplanetary superhighway, dates back 20 years. Um, there's researchers at uh, Caltech, JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and also um, folks in Barcelona, and a, a number of researchers who have worked on this topic over time. So. Um, in terms of, of sort of astrodynamics, um, or what we say space navigation and, and, and mission planning, uh, this is something that is not necessarily new, um, except what is new is, is sort of what we've sort of painted the geometrical picture of it in, uh, in space and, and really found a way to, to sort of um, map out those, those manifolds um, more, more uh, heuristically. So. All right, so a little bit about me. Um, this is sort of my, my own trajectory into academia. So I've been a professor now at UCSD uh, in San Diego here for uh, almost a year, so since uh, July uh, of 2020. Uh, prior to that, I was at the University of Arizona for just over three years. And a lot of the driver to my early research uh, over the past half decade or so has been really to understand how the interactions of, of the gravity of the moon and the sun, uh, and even the radiation pressure, solar radiation pressure from the sun, which is sort of an exotic force that, that, that occurs on, on satellite orbits, how we can use that to really identify stable regions in space where we can park our, our, our satellites at the end of their operational life so that they will stay there uh, and not cause any um, uh, more debris through collisions uh, or the like. And also one of the interesting uh, things is actually how to use those, those instabilities that, that occur on account of those gravitational interactions uh, to uh, drive satellites back into the earth, uh, sort of sort of naturally clean up uh, space. So uh, a lot of my earlier work was actually on looking at some of the, the orbital dynamics uh, formulations that uh, this uh, um, the scientist Malouf Milankovitch did to understand the Earth's paleoclimate, so the ice age problem. And I, I looked at a lot of that work. Um, so that's sort of my, my where I sort of met uh, Natasha and, and I was doing a lot of work on this, uh, what we call the fastly up and up indicator, which is the, the, the sort of the, the tool, the numerical tool that we use to map out these structures. Uh, but I had done that really for understanding orbital resonances, which occur on much longer timescales. Uh, and it wasn't really until uh, Natasha had really taken the inverse approach, which is instead of looking at long timescales, let's look at short timescales for the asteroid problem. Uh, and which I thought was not very significant at first because most people uh, would know that the stability in the solar system, you know, you really have to look at, uh, you know, millions and, and, and even uh, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of orbits. So, so it's uh, something that uh, was very, very unique, I think, um, to, to do. 
Uh, this has actually, you know, received a lot of attention uh, across different uh, media. Most of the, you know, most of the, the news outlets have focused on, of course, the uh, implications for space travel. Uh, and I should probably, you know, caveat our study is that we did not look at that. We actually looked at how small bodies like uh, these centaurs, uh, which behave like comets and asteroids, how they actually um, uh, are affected by these same dynamical um, mechanisms. And in fact, uh, it gets a little bit more complicated and you, you don't really see that there's this, you know, this sort of uh, underlying, um, yeah, space manifold structure to, to that region of space. Uh, and it's kind of, it reminds me a little bit of the discovery of uh, millisecond pulsars. So nobody had thought to look over, you know, time scales less than, than a second. So, so uh, what I mean by this is that uh, if, you, if you study um, solar system dynamics and you look at the stability of, of objects in the solar system, uh, anything from short period comets all the way out to uh, the Oort cloud and, and, and Kuiper belt objects and, and the like, uh, the time scales are on the order of, 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 of hundreds of thousands of years up to uh, a billion years. So these things can, can orbit for, for you know, the age of the solar system in, in some cases. Space manifold dynamics actually occurs over much shorter time scales, and that's what I sort of painted a, a picture with here. Um, and this is a, a look at really, uh, when you look at the local um, sort of um, geometry of, of these manifolds, it all comes back to uh, really uh, the heart of the understanding is that uh, these, these what we call Lagrange points are, are so this is a, a sort of, you can think of this, these space manifolds uh, really as sort of the um, uh, skeleton of, of, uh, of uh, the backbone of, of space and they sort of uh, condition what can happen um, when you're orbiting near them or, or inside them. So all of these, uh, you know, uh, planets generate their own manifold structures uh, on account of the existence of those uh, equilibrium points in this sort of restricted, um, uh, reduced kind of uh, uh, simplistic idealized model. And on account of that, we actually get uh, very um, uh, interesting structures that can actually uh, interact in ways that are very hard to understand uh, mathematically, but uh, we have a lot of numerical tools that allows us to to sort of see these uh, space, what we call space highways. Um, these are actually, you know, used for, for, for mission design. Um, this is a Artemis uh, uh, Thymus spacecraft uh, that basically uh, orbited um, what we call the Lagrange point L1 um, in sort of this, uh, uh, what we say is uh, these sort of periodic orbits or quasi-periodic orbits. So these orbits that repeat over time. Um, so they're orbiting this point. They, they actually arrive to this point through the, what we call the stable manifold. So they're taking that that trajectory to get there, they orbit it, and then they they take the uh, um, some connection between these two periodic orbits to leave that orbit and go around the other one. And you can also have trajectories that go to the moon uh, naturally. So you can think of uh, manifolds as really being um, the collection of free fall trajectories that have very interesting interesting properties. So hopefully that wasn't too technical, but that's uh, sort of what at a high level what I wanted to um, sort of go over here. Awesome. So, uh, uh, very insightful. Thank you, Aaron. So you mentioned in your paper that Jupiter um, helps form a lot of these arcs um, and, and, and the, that, that gravity well um, influences their formation. 
Yeah, right. So, um, you know, Jupiter, of course, being the largest mass, uh, planetary mass in our in our solar system, uh, uh, it's got the highest what we call gravitational parameter. And uh, we understand from the mathematical point of view that uh, the higher the mu, the faster the manifold. So let's say the stronger the, the, the chaos is on account of these, these, these um, um, sort of structures and, and gravitational interactions that we get. So of course, Jupiter is gonna be uh, on the time scale that we looked at, which if you look, you know, we, we only studied the stability over a hundred years, right? Which you don't really think about doing that for solar system objects. Um, so Jupiter, of course, uh, um, has the shortest orbital period of all of the outer planets. It's got the highest mass, so it, and on account of that, you'll see those structures uh, on that timescale um, um, more prevalent than you would see, for instance, Saturn's. Might be a stupid question, but how long um, or wide are these um, manifolds? Yeah, so that's that's not an accurate picture, really, um, because uh, only locally do we have the technique to really um, map out the sort of the structure of them um, in any sort of precise way. And we usually do that in what we, we do that in the in the normal space that you would think about where you would you would be able to say, how wide are these guys? Um, so like they have like a, you know, several kilometers or something, but uh, well, in fact, they're much, much wider than that. But it's really hard to say really the, the, on the arches because those are not projected in that sort of space. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, that's just a slice of the manifolds. Um, it's really hard to say uh, how wide they are. Now, if you look at the entire space, uh, phase, these are, these are sort of a, a very, um, you know, they, they, depending on their, 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 they're, they change in time, okay? So depending on where Jupiter is in its orbit. And uh, uh, they also, uh, as, as you travel out along them, they have a very, um, you know, complicated structure. So they, they will, you know, expand or contract in, in sort of very uh, unpredictable ways. Um, so it's really hard to say how wide they are. Um, could be an interesting question to, to look at, but I think locally you can see, and, um, you know, a lot of the, the the figures you look at, this is a non-dimensional coordinate system that we sort of look at, but they, they can get as wide uh, as the, the orbits that they, they emanate from, which is these periodic orbits. So they, they start off with that sort of width, but they can expand over time. So sort of the width of these, these halo orbits that you get about L1, so. Awesome. Um, I was wondering how uh, quickly could we get to uh, the inner planets from Earth? And, and outer planets traveling in these manifolds. Right, so, so, um, so we, we, we sort of used uh, manifold dynamics already to get to, let's say, the Earth-Sun uh, L1 point. The, the, what has been studied and what has been used in mission design uh, so far is actually what we call, um, we, what we termed sort of the, an aptly named uh, uh, superhighway because it's really these slow back lanes that, that we're taking. Um, it takes a very long time, but of course you, you save fuel. You don't have to, you, you, you take advantage of the natural gravitational interactions. To, to, uh, it's really a free fall path that allows you to get to that region of space uh, with, a, with a lower amount of fuel than you would otherwise need in a conventional propulsion, let's say. Um, but the ones that we've studied, and really we've looked at only those that emanate from the exterior planets, so we're not talking about the things that come near our, you know, near the earth or even the moon system. Um, but these guys, uh, they can, you know, eject particles out to, uh, um, to the distant Kuiper belt in, uh, in under a decade. And, and they can also 
have the inverse effect. They can bring things closer to uh, the inner solar system uh, in, a, in a quite short time scale. So um, this is, uh, yeah, it's a very sort of um, a very interesting problem to study really how to use these for spacecraft navigation and, and mission planning, because these are really higher energy ones than, than have otherwise been studied. So this is where what we say the bottleneck uh, that bounds sort of the, um, the that, that opens up, the, the that allows this manifold dynamics to really happen. Uh, this is really where we have a whole new, uh, um, um, no, a whole new area to, uh, of space to explore. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite, somewhat a little bit distinct from, from these other ones that have been studied in the literature. We're sort of painting a more global picture of it. And if you look at that, um, the arches, they actually start at where those bottlenecks open. Uh, and, uh, and I guess it's kind of hard to explain, but they, um, um, this is more high energy, uh, let's say manifold. So these would, these would probably take a lot less time than, than the other ones that have been used. But of course, then to get to those regions of space where you can you know, you still have to get to those regions where where the manifolds are. So that's uh, that's another whole question of how much delta v it takes to get there, and um, how do you do this in a sort of optimal way? Yeah. Awesome. And and how much uh, what would be a good analogy as to how much fuel you could save? Well, uh, you know, the uh, there is a, there's a Japanese space probe uh, spacecraft that uh, um, uh, Hiten one that uh, wouldn't be able to otherwise have made it because it didn't have enough fuel to make it to um, uh, to, to to lunar orbit, and uh, I think they had some uh, malfunction uh, in their and and when they put it into the parking orbit or something, and so uh, this actually was uh, spacecraft was uh, uh, took. A sort of circuitous route all the way out to let's say from it was going to the moon but it went all the way closer to the sun on a, on one of these type of trajectories and then through uh that gravitational interaction actually came back to the moon and it came back to the moon with such a small velocity that it was able to be captured around the moon with the remaining fuel on board so i i think that 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 entire spacecraft and it, it was studied by a, a, a guy at princeton bel bruno uh, and it was the the term was weak stability boundary, but of course this is a similar sort of dynamical um, mechanism that that people study with what they call space manifolds. Uh, and so really that that spacecraft, who otherwise was stuck, let's say it was stuck in a geostationary transfer orbit, would have never reached the moon and and been able to be inserted in a lunar orbit on account of these manifolds. Was actually it took several months longer than otherwise to get to the moon, but it was able to enter a, a lunar orbit uh, on account of this. And that was actually one of the first, um, yeah, that was one of the first instances of, of using invariant manifolds to, uh, to, to do modern spacecraft design. If you think of a lot of the, um, the satellites that we orbit around the earth, those are very much predicated on Keplerian motion. So very basic um, understanding of, of you know, how things orbit in order to design these missions or the constellations. Um, space manifolds is really when you get into a three-body system, so um, gets a little bit more complicated from from that standpoint. But there's a, it opens up a lot more, you know, a lot more options from from a mission design point of view. That's that's pretty cool, uh, and yeah. also very curious uh, um, to to hear, you know, the the time scales on on how fast we could get to. Um, the inner planets traveling in these uh, space highways 
with um, the the conventional rocket propulsion and and then you know the the, the space elevators. Um, so like, yeah. So so like, um, right. So like the movie The Martian, or, or you know what what it's sort of depicted and and how they were able to get back to the Earth to get back to Mars, right? The gravitational slingshot. That's sort of the traditional conventional way we do uh, mission design, right? We we. And in fact, we actually launched towards the inner solar system to get to the outer solar system. So it's sort of paradoxical, right? Uh, and we actually use the, the gravitational um, uh, interactions between the inner planets as a way to do these gravity assists. Now, what you can do instead with manifolds is that you can target different regions. You don't necessarily have to target, um, you know, let's say, right, you know, almost a collisional trajectory with the planet. But in fact, you can target a region of space that maybe is, is uh, more accessible uh, with a less amount of fuel. And that can actually take you in a natural free fall path to that planet, which allows that, that sort of uh, entire, you know, um, entire, um, you know, transit that you would, you would get. So there, it opens up a lot more. Um, it has been, you know, it has been utilized actually. So uh, this is not something that's very new. What is new with, with our paper is really, um, and actually our target audience was actually dynamical astronomers who have otherwise for, for many, many years have neglected these space manifolds because the time scales are much smaller than they've otherwise studied these, uh, uh, the dynamics of, of objects in the solar system. So we have not necessarily looked ourselves at this uh, spacecraft navigation mission design aspects of these guys, but uh, certainly uh, some of our colleagues have, and, and this is sort of motivated, uh, sort of a new understanding that, that for a global understanding of how you can, you know, piece together different manifolds from different, op for different planets to, to, to utilize that, to, to save fuel and also to save time. Awesome. Yes, uh, it's an exciting endeavor, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I think a good uh, next uh, discussion area would be the implications of these manifolds and, uh, you know, what it means for life and, um, and, and. Right. So one of the, uh-huh. Yeah, I guess the question was, uh, uh, how much will these arcs and uh, manifolds help us predict the uh, uh, collisional NEOs and near-Earth asteroids? Prediction is that, that this happens, you know, these, let's say a, a um, Tunguska-like event would happen once every hundred years. Now, if these manifold dynamics are much more rapid, uh, and, and, and of course, if the, these objects between the orbits of, of let's say, Jupiter and Saturn, um, so the, the, the centaurs or the Jupiter family comets or any of these kind of things, if, if they're on one of these particular trajectories, they can actually have uh, much faster um, transport to the inner solar system on account of these, um, these dynamical interactions. So we can actually end up having, um, you know, let's say we can have Oumuamua, which is the interstellar asteroid that, that, that you know, there's been two actually, or two or three now that we've, we've, we've characterized that have passed through our solar system. These are objects that are on unbounded orbits coming from somewhere, some other system, um, believed to come from some other system. Uh, that understanding, actually, if you look at manifold dynamics, you, you see that you can actually escape objects from the solar system at a much rapid, more rapid time scale. So when you think of how come we're seeing so many of these interstellar uh, visitors, right, uh, now, as opposed to before, well, it could happen that the time scales are actually a much faster than we've otherwise believed. And, you know, if we were to look back in time on life on Earth, uh, 
I don't know, say like a hundred years forward in time or 500 or a thousand years forward in time, um, how much machines and traffic would travel in these manifolds over, over those time scales? Well, I'm a, I, I, I study mostly the space debris problem. So I, I don't think we're gonna be able to use space in a hundred years if we keep up the, uh, the sort of tragedy of the commons that we've been doing, right? I mean, we're launching, SpaceX is launching what? Like, you know, they've already have a thousand satellites operational in a really small region of space. And if you think about it, there's a collision that happens there uh, and we start rendering these, these orbits unusable. We're not gonna be able to do much future exploration of space. Now, if you look at the gateway, the, the lunar gateway, that's actually gonna orbit about um, uh, one of the Lagrange points. And the understanding of that orbit and, and the stability of the orbit actually comes from studying these manifold dynamics. So at the same time, uh, enabling you know, a lot of the future missions that we have, if we have, let's say, uh, objects in these regions of space uh, you know, become, let's say, uh, inactive or they, they uh, have some fragmentation event, well, we're gonna now permeate the, I mean, the, the dynamics of these is that they can come anywhere from re-entering the earth or, or coming you know, close to uh, crossing the paths of all of our, our satellites that we, we rely on for modern, you know, our modern society to all the way to leaving, you know, the system. So there's a, you know, that same dynamics or that same uh, interesting aspects of the manifolds that enable these novel mission concepts is also something that, that needs to be taken a little bit more uh, with care because uh, it can actually end up leading to sort of a, a space, a sustainability issue. And um, so if we project a hundred years, I mean, or even 500 years or say, if we do this in a sustainable way, you can imagine that the, the entire, and I think the entire idea for, for, for the, for the you know, uh, modern lunar exploration is to really utilize these sort of um, understanding of these trajectories to, to, to do that, you know, resupply or, or, or the like. So this is something that is at the current scope of, of mission planning. I could imagine like 99% of spacecraft traveling in them Something like that. I don't know. Um, sounds like they're yeah, highly efficient. It all be a combination of, of conventional propulsion and, and, and electrical propulsion with these guys. Um, but uh, you would think that uh, you know we're going to you know not fight against gravity, but use it to help you know accelerate or, or to help us get to our destination. That's really the idea. Could we um, use a similar method to? map the um these arcs of chaos in in nearby star systems like alpha centauri yeah of course um you know if you look at the i mean if you look at the early formation of the solar system i mean any 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 body that that has a, a substantial mass and if you have a, a, some other bodies that are influenced by that gravity of that that secondary body in the system uh they're going to be influenced by manifolds and manifolds happen not just on a you know on those um, they don't just emanate from the Lagrange points that I talked about, or even the, the orbits that, you know, are about those Lagrange points. So these closed paths that we look at that the, you know, Thiamese spacecraft orbit in. Um, but in fact, any periodic orbit or any bound orbit gives rise and even quasi-periodic orbits, so orbits that don't necessarily repeat, but have a, a rich, you know, almost repetitive structure in space. Um, all of those will generate this type of manifold-like structure. Um, and, uh, and really, it actually goes back to Poincaré is that our understanding of those systems can only happen if we understand those, those, uh, those structures. So um, 
you know, from from you know if you if you if you take this and extend it all the way out to you know galactic dynamics, it's uh, surely there that this is at, at play also in that that regime. Now, of course, the you know when you ask about the width of these, or this is something that is in the phase space is a sort sort of a, a um, how would we say it? it's uh, it's not as prevalent, let's say, as other mechanisms that occur. So it's a very sort of uh, intricate and um, um, I would say uh, on the on the whole of space, it's 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 something that's uh, you know it's not that you just it just happens right that that these manifolds you know uh, permeate all of space. Now, of course, we showed the arches. Now that if you look at it in terms of the entire space that that we looked at, there's a lot of space that doesn't have these rich structures in it, right? So those arches are very very minute structures in that otherwise large um, area of space. So. Um, Understanding those implications, it's 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 a really difficult problem because you have to look at um, you have to look at really six dimensions, right? And we're only looking at two here. <laughs> and even you get get to further and further dimensions when you add other bodies to the system, which complicates the picture even more. So we're we're nowhere near to understanding this from a mathematical point of view. Um, even understanding what we say is uh, larger than three degree of freedom Hamiltonian systems uh, is a very complicated topic, but still. Um, you know, a lot of researchers in applied mathematics are, are, are studying, but numerically we have some of the tools that can do this and, and really that's what we, we've sort of applied for, for our problem. But yeah, it can be, can be done for other, other systems, you know, also in the formation of, of systems as well. How do planets, you know, get to the, um, the sort of orbital architectures that we see today? Um, that's another thing, but then that, that gets you into understanding um, the mutual interactions of two bodies with mass. So it's a little bit more complicated, well, a lot more complicated problem. Yeah. And the last question, um, how much could, and these are really loaded questions, so, um, but, but how much could space-based um, instrumentation and, and, and spacecraft and telescopes help us observe and understand and predict these manifolds and and uh, from from orbit and and the moon and uh... well we don't we don't I mean they're not they're not something you view right I mean they're they're not they're invisible structures uh, this is a uh, they exist in in a sort of idolized mathematical sense um, we study this as a model right of the motion and um, you're not gonna you know look at a telescope and see a manifold or something but what you would see is the behavior of an object. So you know we've characterized, we've seen the orbit of the, uh, this comet of Therma, and then if we map that orbit over time, we can actually attribute that dynamics. What it, it looks like a very circuitous route of like it looks like it's jumping from one or one uh, region of space to another. And if you look at it from just you know um, from you know, distant point, you just map the dynamics. You'd say this is very very uh, complicated, but in fact it's really just following one of those trajectories that you can map out. With uh, with even at that level with the with the analytical techniques, so we're theoretically understand that motion and why it's doing those jumps. Um, so you you don't really necessarily look with the with instrumentation at manifolds, but you can you can look at objects that are influenced by the manifolds, and then you infer why they're being moved in the way they are. Awesome. Yeah. Um. Cool. Well, I uh, love. Love the work you're doing over there and the research. I think it's really important. Um, Thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us today, Aaron. I uh, learned a lot. So it's, I hope, hope everyone else did out there as well.
Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Uh, take care.